Hello everyone, welcome to the second episode of Understand Anything. I am back with one of my good friends, uh, Kalen Replogle. He, we're at Canes in Magnolia, Texas right now. That's kind of our hangout location. Uh, this is kind of a trial uh, run for, I guess, outside restaurants or whatever. Uh, we're actually outside, which is new for me at least. So uh, I'll introduce Kalen a little bit before we start. He's a very, very intelligent man. He's going to uh, UT, uh, really prestigious Macomb School of Business where he's studying finance uh, and probably something else too, right? Computer science. Computer science, yeah. Kalen's always been, we actually met uh, in a computer science class and he, he yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. He, he's very good at coding, economics, really anything. We. Uh, we debated together on a team for three years together, and we did pretty well. So, uh, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, no, thank you. Though. Okay, so what are we going to talk about today, Kalen? Well, I think a good title for today's episode is going to be called Ad Meliora. It's Latin for to a better day, I believe. What, so, what do you want a better day? Uh, I see a lot of broken things. With what? just in general in our educational system and our political systems that I think are propagating all of the different various issues and I think that the broken education system is the central problem that is causing all of the other issues. That's probably a great topic and we actually debated this topic for a straight solid year. Yeah. Uh, I, right? Do you remember the topic name? Yeah, that was brutal. Uh, <laughs> it was. U.S. federal government should substantially decrease its restriction. No, that's immigration. Educational something. regulation, something yeah. like that. It was fun, though. I don't even... What did we talk about? We talked about a whole... I think we ran stuff. STEM the entire yeah. way through, really. Yeah, yeah it was cool. Oh, uh, yeah. So, what do you want to start out with? Uh, well, you, you're so a high, you were a high school. You went to public high school all your... Or public school all your life, right? Right. And... So, over the past couple of weeks, I've been kind of going to areas of Texas that aren't for fortunate enough to have the spending that we have here in Magnolia. Mm -hmm. I went to Midland in South Texas, a little town called Cuero. Uh, I was working on oil rigs there, being with people that didn't go to high school but still had to work 90 to 100 hours a week on average, 120 if it got bad enough, all for the great prize of oil. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, that's kind of interesting because a few weeks ago I was driving down with um, your roommate Carrington, and uh, we went through down. We went. We were driving through the Third Ward in Houston, and uh, the thing that I noticed it was really interesting is like, uh, you know, the Third Ward is, is kind of. I don't think it's as bad as the Fifth Ward, but it's still kind of. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough neighborhood. Yeah, but the, really interesting, and you know, I, I read online about all these uh, facts about how so many of them are dropping out of school, but the really interesting thing I think I saw was that um, they had a really big, very nice high school in yeah. terms of money, but, so I, I guess that's one of the things we're going to talk about. So first off, I think that, I mean, we all know the quote that education is the great equalizer, right? It yeah. was said by our founding fathers, and it's generally a great principle. It's kind of the backbone of the American dream. It's because no matter if you're an immigrant or if you're first, second, third gen, you can always have a free public educational system. But the problem isn't that the educational system is free, necessarily like elementary and secondary schools, but that, well, I mean primary and secondary schools. Uh, it's that the quality of that is varies rapidly, not widely throughout the United States. So... The, how education in the U.S. runs is it's it's not all equalized. There's different uh, levels of it, right? So yeah. you will have a substantially different education in Oklahoma than you would in Texas. Right, and, the, and that fact that, and we can tie up tons of things to your educational quality in your childhood, right? So that the fact that your future can be more or less determined by your zip code in which you were raised, uh, that's a distressing factor that I think leads to these cycles that we see around us, like the cycle of poverty. You are born in a poor neighborhood. That poor neighborhood uh, spends less in taxes towards the school district as, you know, in proportionate to other school districts that are in more fortuitous areas, such as higher income neighborhoods. And also on top of the fact that 
the spending that the U.S. government has tried to do in order to combat this inequality has more or less just always failed. If you look up George Bush No Child Left Behind Act, uh, you can find countless articles saying how that richer schools are getting the spending both based upon the incorrect formulas that the spending uses, right? Well, it doesn't really matter as much about how much they spend, right? Like, there are some countries that don't spend as, as much as we do on education. But that's also because those countries are nationalized, so they can see where that spending goes every step of the way. Whereas the U.S. federal government, the only thing that they can do is to create mandates that kind of force schools on, like, local schools to follow their guidelines, but it's not exactly binding and it's not exactly control over those said schools. So it depends on the teacher more or less? Uh, it depends on the school district. And then the little known, you know, fact that people just forget whenever they compare educational systems worldwide is that the United States is pretty much one of the more in common systems where we have this uh, kind of breakdown and uh, unnationalized school systems. And so what I'm saying is that public school, i.e. like uh, kindergarten through 12, should be of the same quality we're striving to be of the same quality in every district, in every zip code, uh, nationwide, right? Why? Well, because this cements the American dream, kind of. It, what it really does is it cements the backbone that any kid that's born in any district receives the same quality of education that will yield him the same chance of every outcome in his future, right? Like. We can all agree that a kid that goes to some high school that is underfunded and understaffed and underutilizes its you know, workforce of teachers is going to have a chance of getting into Harvard that is going to differ than that of someone that goes to the Woodlands High School, someone that goes to Magnolia High School, and you can say that about any other university as well, right? And that fact just kind of disturbs me, because if we say we're a nation where Equal, uh, education is the greatest equalizer, then it's education is obviously not being used to be the equalizer because everyone doesn't have the same chance. Your zip code is defining your future. So this broken education system yields a geographic disparity in income, right? People that go to school districts that are more prepared and have more funding tend to have better yielding futures, and those futures tend to have higher incomes, and then they go back to areas that are similar to that and the process continues where the richer school districts get more and more funding and they perform better and better, whereas well, poorer districts thing, get less. Thing, no. I mean, I think that that's a good idea, but what about, like, kids don't necessarily need to go to Harvard to be successful in life, or they don't need, necessarily need to go to college. Yeah, but, I mean, like, the extreme of Harvard isn't really necessary. What is necessary is that they can get into a school that is, like, a good state school, like but University of Texas. people don't always need to go to... To but, but they do need that backbone of, That's true. you know, primary and secondary, like at least the 12th grade education in order to succeed at life. Probably. Like, like how are you going to be able to know how to send emails or how to write? You need a solid, every student in America in public high schools and public education should be able to have, you know, a solid understanding of math, a solid understanding of English, a solid understanding of you know, writing, uh, okay. science, biology. I think that's fair. How do you right. fix it? Uh, nationalizing and then setting standards. If you nationalize education, I don't think that the federal government should be in charge of education because I don't trust politicians, and that's going to probably going to be discussed later. Uh, we have a system in place right now with the Federal Reserve that I think is. Uh, you want to explain what that is, real quick? Okay, it's just the banking system in the United States. The Founding Fathers, well, I guess it wasn't the Founding Fathers who established the Federal Reserve, but they wanted, the, whoever founded it, wanted it to be free of politics, and so they created it independent of the United States of America. It's not exactly within Congress and within... Uh, yeah, it's not controlled by anyone yeah. in the three branches, right? It's not, it's yeah, loosely. it's loosely controlled, and it's mainly just, I think the council's like 13 people it's independent 
and to establish that way to be free from politics, which makes sense because you don't want politicians in charge of your money supply. Yeah. Uh, so the same thing could be made with education. An independent council of 12, 13 people, probably 13, with one in charge and 12 uh, council members. They're all of varying, you know, uh, are all established professionals, PhDs, uh, that know what the students should be learning, like math professors, English professors, people held in high esteem by academia. Mm. Academia has its flaws, but I think in this regard, with primary education, it's not going to be a problem. You know, everyone understands that people need to learn math uh, up to, you know, calculus. Everyone understands that they should learn how to write, right, and what histories they should learn or not. You know, I think one of the things that teachers complain about is they say that teachers aren't making the standards that they have to teach. Is that something? They're saying, like, at the state level... That what? They're not getting able to choose what they want to teach. Or for standardized testing, for example, they're preparing uh, kids for the test, so they're not learning any more real-world skills. I mean, that can all be debated in, like, minutia of... No, what I'm exactly saying, I'm saying your, your, your thing would have, your kind of idea would avoid that because it would be people. Yeah, but there'd still be like national curriculums, national standards set instead of like the United States having to guess based upon all of these like star tax. Like that's just for Texas. Like how are you going to really c- compare and contrast so you're saying easily, like right? a nationalized test kind of? Because mm-hmm. okay. then it'd be easier to see which districts are faltering and which aren't and which are succeeding and which model to success like to follow? Which successful model you want to follow? Right? In most of the world's leading countries, do this. Yeah. Like uh, Korea, Japan, Sweden, Switzerland, or whatever. And it's also probably good to note, and this ties into like how I view the political system, is that we spend more per student per student than I think. I think every country. Every country, virtually every country. That's pretty ridiculous. And you know. This kind of solves that down because it, it's trying to get rid of inefficient spending. Mm-hmm. But also, that increasing in spending over time is a symptom of the broken political system where uh, where the political system is looking for short-term solutions and thinking, and it's restrained by the party, right? Like, yeah. If you're going to... They're not going to be able to... Okay, I guess I'll dive into this. This is going to make me sound a little nuts, but... Whenever you enter into the world of politics, your thinking is constrained by the paradigms of politics in America, right? Party lines. Party lines. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that's what's going to destroy America if if nothing else will. Yeah, I mean, I agree too. So, let's... First... I guess let's discuss how most people get involved in politics. Their family or friends are already of a political uh, party, affiliated with a political party, and so they become influenced that way. And then it's kind of like you see this, uh, what is it? it's like seeing the solution and just creating what you believe in order to fit that solution. Yeah. You, your friends are Democrats, you're a Democrat, and now you fit your views to conform with that of the Democratic Party. How many people do we know personally that actually go through each party's platform? They have the party platform on their website. It's not like it's hidden from us. No, I agree. Right? It's 60 pages each, uh, GOP and the Democratic Party. Uh, I've known no one that has gone through each of them, went point by point, and went, oh, I am X. Right? No, I agree. I think you're right, and it's kind of like a it's kind of like a, uh, a ch- chains, you know? Like, mm-hmm. if someone says they're a Democrat, they're stuck to all those positions. They're stuck to it. And it's it's become kind of like the bad parts of academia where they won't disagree with major parts of the current dogma, but they, but they will, like, establish their success through disagreements upon the smallest thing yeah. $15 versus 10 or $15 a minimum wage versus 20 like that's what's propelling these people not the overall ideology like shifts shifting and shipments in 
the overall ideology. And it's kind of interesting when, like, you see the party switches, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, one will say, like, they hate something, and then the next president will get elected, and then that will be all for it. And it happens on both sides. And it's really interesting to see, and if you have friends who support one party they'll automatically be swapped. Yeah, like Republicans are now against globalization. That was something, you know, major. Mm-hmm. You know, free trade was a pretty big thing. Yeah. And now they're not. So, yeah. this constraint in thinking has led to people only being able to think about things within the system. And it makes sense because politics is a zero-sum game. There are people in charge, and then if you're not of those people, then you're not in charge. It's hard to get elected if you're not part of those parties. Right. So, since it's a zero-sum game, if you're not for us, you're against us, that type of thinking is pretty contagious within those systems. So, you're kind of saying you should, if you're making a voting decision, you shouldn't vote someone based on party, you should vote for someone based on uh, political pragmatism. Political pragmatism is probably what I identify most most with, but like this group think is not. Yeah, it's really bad. It's it's really bad. I think, uh, especially I I think it was kind of hard for me to realize until I was kind of stuck in an echo chamber type of group. Right. I think you'll know what I'm talking yeah. about, but it's it's very toxic. It is very toxic. And people won't even talk to other people, or they'll just... You're not for me, you're against me. Yeah. Therefore, if you disagree with any of my points, however, like, however in the, you know, details you disagree with me upon, like, whether it should be, like, $15 or $15.5, then you're yeah. giving ammo to the other side. Therefore, <laughs> you are a foe, not a friend. Yeah, that type of thing. Um... Yeah, it's really interesting. And to tie that this broken political system up with the educational system, since parties are only thinking of what they can, and they're not exactly having these big ideas like nationalizing the educational system because they're already caught up in the inertia of their other ideas. So this leads to affirmative action policies. Like, um, love them or hate them, uh, I believe that they sprouted out of the same seed as our broken educational system because what you're seeing is, I mean, we can all agree that, like, uh, ever since, you know, immigration was ever a thing, ethnic groups have clustered towards each other, right? Oh, yeah. There's a reason why the phrase Chinatown exists, or Little, Ita- Little Italy, is that the phrase? Yeah. No, it's true. And since they're clustered around these towns, and, you know, first-generation immigrants aren't exactly coming over with boatloads of money, and, you know, that's... That makes sense. Like, it shouldn't be the fact... Like, that's through no fault of their that's own. That's the they leave. That's why they're leaving, right? It's because they didn't have a good life where they came. But this means that their educational system there is not going to be of the highest merit that's true. in these areas. And so what you'll end up seeing is that the demographics of people that are in successful positions are not going to match that of the general population. And so you have affirmative action, which is a way to fix this by enforcing race-based decision-making and admissions. Oh, that's right? kind of shammy, right, too? Huh? The oh. practice is kind of shammy. Yeah, the practice is kind of shammy. And, like, the broken educational system is still in place. So it's like painting the walls of the crumbling house. Yeah. Uh, and it leads to social angst on race. That's what I think. Well, and uh, this kind of reminds me of the... Uh, the Chinese kind of Harvard thing, or the Asian, not, oh, I guess it's yeah. not just Chinese, but uh, right. Asians with Harvard, they're classifying, what are they, you, you, we've had a talk about this before, they're classifying them based on certain characteristics, common characteristics, and they're denying them yeah. if they fit these certain trends, right? Right, and like mathematically, they're, uh, I think their SATs brought down by 50 points statistically, right? And then ours, is, uh, well, no, like white people's, I think the same. I think they use white people as the base, and then whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is just silly. This is. It's kind of broken. This is racist, depending on like what definition of race you agree with, because now it's kind of changing. Yeah, I actually, uh, I guess this is a side topic. But the other day, was, uh, race is something that's kind of, kind of interesting to me, but not really. I don't like it. Like. Uh, 
I don't know. It's a weird topic. It is, but the, it makes you feel weird. The the, um, the definition of race in the United States is drastically different from race in any other part of the world. The, I, oh really? Yeah, it's really cool. I was reading it. Maybe I can find the description, put it in the description, but uh, that's like the Anglo-American uh, definition of race is vastly different. And depending on like, I believe more. Uh, I was looking up uh, what's the most like diverse country in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that the rest of the world looks at it, it's Af it's African countries. It's I think it's uh, Libya or Liberia or one of those, because they see race as more of an uh, ethnicity kind of thing. But uh, the United States is one of the I think it's the only country, or maybe maybe a few other of the Western countries that view it more than skin color. So if we're viewing it kind of as that, or as your your culture or whatever, that's that's that would be the United States, for instance. That would be the most diverse. But if you're looking at like the, the ethnicity where you came from, not as a external factor of judgment, but more of as a where your family came from. Right. Which is interesting. That is interesting. But what, what you kind of reminded me about this, um, all these ethnic groups kind of grouping together. Like a little Italy's Chinatowns. It just makes sense, you know. It does, and that's where my family. That's where my family was from until yeah. my dad moved from there, and they're all grouped together. And maybe that's better that they're all grouped together. How we're all grouped yeah. together. I mean, there's a, a lot of stances on this, but I don't know. It just seems like when affirmative when when these affirmative action programs are in place, it just it propagates these issues. I mean, the issues are still occurring, but now under even more of a, uh, you know, shield than before. Yeah. You can't exactly find them, you know, because you're meeting the metrics, and then the social angst on race is happening because people have, uh, people wrongfully assume that someone of a certain race has a job just because of said affirmative action programs, which shouldn't be the case. You know, everyone should be, uh, everyone in this society should be treated with equal opportunity. Equal opportunity. Yeah. But, so fixing that would most definitely happen. And then, like, how this isn't, how this isn't just organically happening seems to be from the fact that you know what's the term limit of a person in the house like two years two right? years how many years for someone in the senate six years six. but you know they don't have the majority's uh, house yeah they don't have party limits though right no. they're trying like one of them is trying to but i don't know why they give themselves limits yeah why would they vote for that yeah and since like their term two and six years and then a president's four years how long is that in the scheme of things? It's nothing. How long is that? If I implement a solution right now for, I don't know, X problem, right, with Y solution, how many years will it take in order for that problem to be fixed? The communists had five-year plans. That seems to, they had generally a little bit over-ambitious plans every five years. Yeah. In five years is more than two times the average house limit, right? Yeah, that's so true. So the house, members of the house have to act for the greatest short-term benefit of their constituents because if there's a long-term benefit, but, you know, things are muddled in the short-term, then their constituents are not going to be pleased. And they can't really do anything if there's gridlock right, right now. Right, so you need long... So there needs to be like a longer time horizon in order to start judging whether these whether these plans are working or not, as opposed to every two years. So that kind of that forces their hands into just giving out these handouts to various institutions, such as the educational institutions, which may which propels the like the dollars per student that the U.S. spends on average upwards, because you know if you don't have enough time to think of a solid idea, giving teachers more money is good politics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I guess people could do that, or they could just look at policy. Uh, 
uh, like nonpartisan way and just see which one will better benefit their constituents instead of looking at it for their party under yeah. party lines. Right. It's kind of it's it, it's just always seems ridiculous to me. Yeah, that all of this. Yeah. It's. Well, it's all way, messed up. The way I see it is they're they're not trying to help people out. They're just trying to get real up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're trying to. They're trying to sustain themselves in these entrenched positions. Yeah. And for a for someone who's in the house, they always got to do that. Right. It's two years, and they always have and to be outspoken. They always have to be putting down someone else. And so this, the populism we're kind of seeing in both the left and the right, yeah. is probably a byproduct of these systems. Like, it's political points to say something. You know, uh, what's the phrase I'm seeing on Twitter? Like, eat the rich. Eat the, yeah, eat the rich. I don't know. Twitter is a frustrating source. Yeah, Twitter is a frustrating source, which is also a zero-sum system, yeah, right? People say, people tweet trying to, I hate the term virtue signal because it's kind of been uh, co-opted by certain elements of the uh, Republican Party, but I guess signaling is a better term for it, that they're, you know, better or better than you. Or they're of a higher moral status just because they don't eat X, drink Y, or think Z, right? Save the straws. Yeah, yeah, save the straws. Save the turtles, not the, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, it's it's quite silly. So, like, a long time ago, uh, well, at least the way I was taught was you're not supposed to talk about... Uh, religion and politics. politics. Yeah. And that suddenly became the things you only talk about. Maybe not, maybe religion so much, I don't know. But uh, politics at least more, and you don't talk to anyone who disagrees with you. Uh, well, it's, yeah, religion, I don't think people touch on religion as much because uh, the whole, I mean, if you look at the segments of the population that are spurring on this debate or the, like, political conversation, Attacking religion can be seen as offensive to certain ethnic groups because certain ethnic ethnic groups share different ideologies. Yeah. Right. And so, if you're attacking one religion, or if you're attacking religion in general, that can be deemed offensive. I mean, like, look at how much flack Sam Harris has gotten over attacking Islam. like a general consensus is that it's okay to attack one religious group while you defend another. Does that make sense? Right. It's real Palestine. Yeah. Uh, like you can attack one all you want, but if you attack another, or if you don't attack another, it's like hearsay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That just might be from where I'm going from. I don't know. I always felt like people had a problem with Catholics, but... Religion just shouldn't be touched. Yeah. It's one of those issues, unless it's like, it's, you know, unless it, it affects you personally, like, in the immediate, not even through, like, words, but through, uh, action. Like, if yeah. one religion's like, we should kill all of X, then, and they act on that. Because yeah. religious texts can, yeah. a lot of them say everything, well, so... Well, they can be warped around. You can course. warp them any way you want to make it sound like... It'll support whatever you believe. A good book on that is called Misquoting Jesus. Yeah, read this that. Professor actually uh, learns ancient, I think, it was like ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew, all of the uh, ancient language. Yeah, pretty much. And he translated the Bible himself, I believe, and he found the inconsistencies. Yeah. And I don't know, it's just interesting to see. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And how people think back then versus they think now. Yeah. Like, I read a book. Whoa. Can you describe a pencil? Hmm? Describe a pencil. Yellow. Octagonal prism. Prism, yeah. I think. Right? Well, that's what how we would describe it today, but Jews 2,500 years ago describe it as able to be written with 
be able to record information with. They thought a lot more of the uh, purpose of the pencil. The function. Does that mean yeah. it makes sense? That does so it's make just, a lot of sense. It's kind of interesting. I, I think that kind of stuff is interesting. At least. Mm -hmm. I forget what that book's called. Something about something similar to what you're talking about. I can't pull up book names off the top I just, of my head. Okay. Uh, do you remember the? Okay, here's an example of how extreme political discourse has gotten. Do you remember the Black Ariel controversy? Maybe. You know, they're making a new movie uh, about The Little Mermaid. Okay. And an uh, African-American actress yeah. is Ariel now. Okay. The Democratic, I guess, I don't know how they identify. Like, base? The Democratic base, or some extreme members of that base, more leftist numbers. Yeah, yeah. They said that uh, they ran all these articles with various tweets from Twitter users expressing discontent and generally racist thoughts towards the idea that a black person would play Ariel. Wait, really? Yeah. And the funny thing was, is that if you went through each tweet, each one of them had maybe 200 followers. Maybe. Some... Some as low as six, I believe. And it wasn't exactly... They only had like six or seven tweets from this people. And I think the ti uh, title was... Like, it, it varied from like a wave of discontent... Like wave of racism about Black Ariel, you know. Hello! <laughs> and that's how it's, it seems like people are just cherry-picking Twitter users and then yeah. using it to describe the broad general... Uh, it, no, I, that makes sense to me. I don't know how anyone could care how a fictional character that can swim underwater and breathe underwater. Who also who has no legs. Who also has no legs. Like, why would people care? About yeah. That? Like, yeah, that's kind of odd. Yeah. What something stuck out to me lately is how um, how people use words, like certain words. Like what? Can be used to I don't know, like one word and like a title can be used to manipulate a context. Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes look. Okay, do you know the OK symbol is racist? This symbol? Yeah. Okay, so you ready? You ready to see it? So the three fingers up is W, and this can be looked as a P, so it's white power. Well, this is just what the scuba divers use. Yeah, like, yeah, to say, yeah, to say yeah. OK. Now, if you actually look into it, I, this is going to sound super conspiracy, but it's actually true. Uh, <laughs> Dude, first, first podcast I've ever done. I'm gonna use the website 4chan, but yeah, 4chan <laughs> users uh, prove uh, they tried to get people to think that the OK symbol was racist, and so they tweeted about it through anonymous Twitter accounts. And there's actually a whole thread online of them discussing and planning how to convince so, people. So they to were think planning this. this. Yeah. So this was like a was it a psychological test, or were they just trying to? I think it was back in my younger days okay. when I was in, super into computer science and I was into the whole uh, uh, like hacking thing, yeah. right? Uh, I read a whole lot about this group of 4chan users. It's kind of it's kind of a group. It's you can't verify if any of them are the same people yeah. as they were before because it's 4chan. It's like anonymous, right? Yeah. I don't know. I've never been on the site, but like they had this whole war of Scientology. Okay. Did you hear about this? No. Like, they... Ever since that... I think it was, like, the Tom Cruise video where he said he was, like, better than everyone because as a Scientologist, if yeah. he sees an accident, he has to help. Yeah. Because he's not selfish like the rest of us or whatever. Okay. Uh, 4chan users, like, started just, uh, like, harassing Scientology. Like, they shut down their website. They marched on Scientology. So it's, like, a generally erratic group of people. Yeah. In some regard... But oh shit! So these people are like I don't know. It just seems like a group of people that just mess around. They did that whole thing with Shia LaBeouf, where Shia LaBeouf had that uh, protest on 2016, the Donald Trump thing, and so he had this like anonymous location live feed, and 4chan users were able to decipher where he was using the stars and using planes. Okay. They found out there was actually an NPR podcast on this. But there's so much outrage about them just talking about how a group of people found and stole a flag from Shia LaBeouf because the whole thing was his live feed of a flag hanging up 
that said like F Trump or something okay. like that, right? Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, this is cool. And something else that's interesting to me is how people see uh, people who have like bachelor's degrees as like geniuses on subjects. You know, does this make sense? Like what? Well, like people on, I guess Twitter's, yeah, I mean, I'll use yeah, Twitter, yeah. like, I'll pull up a TED talk with people oh. who they think are some genius yeah. person, but they've, like, studied a top, like, they've taken six classes with some off-brand professor who doesn't know what he's doing, or she's doing, or they're doing. I think the number one most important lesson we learned through debate was that you can pretty much find a professor, oh, any professor. You can find anyone saying anything. Anything. Anything at all. Yeah. For example, you can get... You can find evidence to say that if a fan is on in a debate room, and who was that by? It was probably like some someone prestigious university. If you if the fan is on during a debate room, that is what is it harmful yeah, to it's everyone? Harmful. Yeah, it's like decapitate you. And so the other team should be dropped from the debate, meaning that you should win the rounds because the other team turned the fan on. Yeah, and these are like incredible people, and it's. That's like there's time cube stuff from uh, like astronomers or astrophysicists yeah. talking about how the world is a time cube uh, and it rotates at a certain speed, so it makes it look like a sphere. Like, so how do how do we find credible information in like a world that's so crazy? Other than uh, like, I think metadata or meta analysis of papers where you have six yeah. or seven uh, verified professors and then it gets reviewed in a peer reviewed journal. Oh, I've yeah, I've been thinking about this too. One of the main problems that you can also see in academia is that someone will publish a report or publish a paper saying that they found X or that there was a discovery within this subject, and the problem is is that the institutions that try to verify this, uh, these papers, like no one becomes famous because they verified X paper. Yeah. They become famous for creating a paper okay. that said X, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that actually makes sense. Like when we're in school and we have to write a paper, mm -hmm. we just pull random stuff together, we cherry pick to prove our point. Right. Or at least. And uh, I've no, I'm reading the discovery of the structure of DNA by James Watson mm -hmm. and he said there was uh, I think it was in this book maybe or maybe it was like some thread I read in chemistry about how they tried to use a certain chemical mixture in order to form a certain like isotope of an mm -hmm. atom right but nine like nine or eight times out of ten the paper is wrong and they just published it yeah. anyway where there's lots of falsified data well, that's the problem, right? Like, people who have to publish dissertations, they'll do whatever they have to do right. Right, for their doctorates, which is seen as academically credible by most people, or even these big papers that have six or seven scientists working together. Yeah. Or for, uh, I don't really, <laughs> political, political scientists are credible, apparently. Oh, but, political science, yeah. Um, that's another one of these zero-sum games. There's only a certain amount of spots at prestigious institutions. That's true. That's really true. Right? And this, you see that same thing in, like, law firms. There's, yeah. a, there's, like, ten associates for every partner, and the whole goal of the associates is to become partner, partner, but there's only a limited amount. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, I don't know, I've said as much as... I've wanted to say about education, but going into wealth, wealth is the only thing I can think of that is a positive sum game. Uh, Naval Ramakant, uh, I believe, said this in a recent... He has this whole podcast called Naval that I'm obsessed with. But one of his things was that wealth is a, a positive sum game because a thousand years ago, we were all messing with sticks, and if it was a zero-sum game, we'd still be messing yeah. with the same sticks. I mean, I, I think that you're certainly more uh, knowledgeable on this economic stuff than I am, but I think that that seems to make sense for me as well as me. Right. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm glad that makes sense. Because most of the times I'm rambling. Oh, 
that's never fun. Well, I think I but, think wealth was kind of getting misconstrued today. Yeah. I think um, most definitely. Like, I you you were probably gonna talk about this, so I'm sorry for stealing your stuff. But, oh no 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 no. Um, Kaylin was telling me. Well, this is uh, Kaylin and I were talking before school got out about how people will say someone is someone is so wealthy they can't use all this wealth but they don't mm -hmm. actually have it all can you go over this a bit because you'll be, be better at it explaining it than i can yeah when you think about billionaires or multi-millionaires or even like a person that's worth i don't know 300 million dollars they're not 300 million dollars cash rich 90 percent of the time 90 percent of the time it's all in stocks and bonds and if they're just highly yeah uh, fluctuating highly volatile yeah and if a CEO of a company, if a big tech company starts selling all of his stock so he can become cash rich, uh, the market does not look at that favorably and that is transparent to the market. Anytime they do that, they have to file a public report in the SEC. Mm -hmm. And when people see that the CEO of a tech company or founder of a tech company is selling his stock, it's never a good yeah. sign. Yeah, uh, WeWork, are you familiar with them? the whole like office renting company or whatever yeah yeah i think you were telling me about them mm -hmm. their ceo sold a 700 million dollars worth of stock before the uh, ipo i don't know when the ipo is but that's not going to be looked at that's as the, a favorable when they start that's the price of a stock when it's going on the stock market mm -hmm. yeah initial public offering so that's so he was selling it before it went to stock so yep. it was guaranteed an amount of money Right. right. And he was selling it while it was fixed. Yeah. So it had to take an automatic decline right as it opened. Yeah, it's it's, it's gonna that's gonna be an, an interesting debut. Oh, it hasn't debuted yet. I don't think <laughs> oh, so. But uh, back on wealth, like even even if I even if like certain p political parties uh, heighten regulations on an industry, that in itself creates a positive sum of wealth even if it intends to have the opposite effect. There's an entire industry for finance called the uh, financial compliance industry. And what they do is they make sure banks are up to the law with everything yeah. they do. Because yeah. that's very highly regulated. Because there's so much risk now, yeah. right? If you mess up and if you put something in some account when it should be in People another, money. yeah, you could be sued. You, there could be a criminal uh, And it's suit. really easy to happen. Right, especially whenever like there's so much regulation nowadays, right? Especially, uh, so that in itself created uh, I don't know a billion dollar industry yeah. in compliance until like regulations, which I thought was very funny. Well, there's always going to be more industries opening up, right? Mm -hmm. Like people weren't making cloud service companies yeah. in the year oh five. Yeah. Right. Two thousand five. Yeah. Yeah, even in 2005, people weren't creating those things. And wealth gets misconstrued. I don't think people understand inflation. I don't think people who... We have this weird idea, like, money is all around us, but we all think we know how money works. Even when we're uh, talking about various industries. Like, I'm never going to talk about AI, right? I'm never going to have any judgments on AI outside of, like, moral or ethical boundaries and I've done I've dabbled in AI I've created like Twitter AI bots I had to do that at Georgia Tech but people don't do that same thing when it comes to finance everyone thinks that they're an expert on the 09 mortgage crisis everyone thinks they're an expert when it comes to how much what is like how much Amazon should be paying in taxes each year yeah right or tax laws too, right? Tax law, right? That's like complicated. Or how much the rich should really be paying, or how much X income group should be paying. Everyone thinks that they're an expert on that. And it's just because we have familiarity, familiarity with money. Money's all around us. We talk about money. Look at a car. Cars are all around us right now, and there's all price tags attached to these cars. As I'm sure you guys can hear. You know, people have more. People put mortgage, which is essentially kind of a bond, yeah. on their home, which they can't afford. Yeah, and so, but people don't treat it like I would or everyone would with 
neuroscience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes sense. It's vast. It's it's vastly complicated. I just finished a book on Jay Gold, and Jay Gold died with, I believe, maybe a hundred million dollars, and he was one of the richest people in his time. And if you convert that to today's money, he's a billionaire a hundred times over, I believe. One of the wealthiest people in history. But you can't use those same arguments you can with why billionaires are bad for society that you can with a person that's a 50 to 100 millionaire. Because that nominal figure doesn't mean anything. Uh, the one I'm seeing so much lately that's just cancerous almost is the whole idea that what was it like january 1st 1900 if you spent a thousand dollars a day you'd still have money left over oh yeah for like billionaires and mm -hmm. as an argument against it of how much money that is yeah but in reality it's that's a nominal figure yeah a thousand dollars doesn't mean the same as a thousand dollars did back then you can't have a nominal figure and not attach it to the real value of money Right. Can can you? Um, I think one of the big things going on today is uh, I don't know. Do you want to stay on this topic for a minute, for a little bit more? Uh, you can go into it. Well, this is a kind of a similar question. Yeah, yeah, go but, into it. Uh, can you talk about MMT? Oh, modern monetary theory. Uh, I think that's kind of that's kind of one of those budding economic theories that people. When yep. you were talking about people think they know a lot about money, it kind of reminded me about. And it also ties in so that you can find a professor that believes anything. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk, uh, tell us a little bit about it first? Who uh, thinks it's a good idea? Uh, Bernie Sanders, economist, and the one of the two largest economists on the Democratic parties are both fans of modern monetary theory, and it makes it's another symptom, I think, of failing institutions where people uh, and widening deficits where people can believe this thing i don't think oh 12 percent. i don't think people know if it's right or wrong yet uh it's certainly a pretty new take on an old idea that you can just print as much money as you can it's, it's basically just the economic theory being used to justify massive deficit massive deficits and massive spending on any party's platform with regards to how much debt we currently have, like if we have 22 trillion, if you had, if you, Andrea, had 22 trillion dollars of debt, it wouldn't be a good thing. No. Do you know what I mean? It's usually not seen as a good thing. Yeah, usually not seen as a good thing. But we can ignore all that and we can just have a policy that says, you know, as long as you can issue debt in your own currency, right, and you can raise taxes or decrease taxes on yourself yeah. or your people or whatever your little kingdom of Andrew land, uh, you'll be okay. Okay. Because deficits don't matter, because this is modern monetary theory. But that's kind of seen as something you should always avoid from the past, having debt. We'll see how the cookie crumbles. You know, I was uh, reading the news or something, apparently one of the, uh, this doesn't really relate, but one of the congressmen, uh, wanted to title, you know, that budgetary bill that they want to pass. If you put it in a title, right. uh, kick the can down the road act or something. Mm -hmm. I thought that was funny, but it didn't pass. Yeah, they shouldn't. I don't think they should have debt ceilings because they always pass it. Yeah. We should cut social security because that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, and it's we're we're paying for now, or whenever you start paying taxes to. Uh, that comes out of your balance. It's paying for the people today. Right. It's not paying for us in the future. Yeah. So by the time we're 65, it's there's not going to be there. Not going to be there for us. And it's it, a pyramid game, right? It kind of started out as a way to get people to retire, right? It was used as to get people out of the workforce during the. I think so. I don't know. All I know is that it's a. It relies on the fact that there's going to be less of us in the future than there are today. Which is kind of absurd. Which, it's absurd nowadays. Probably wasn't abs yeah. as absurd back then. Because nowadays, you know, who knows how long we'll live. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, 
I think we need to finish up just because my computer's uh, crumbling down. But I would like to have you back on again. Maybe maybe you can partner up with me. I don't know. He's he's gonna be only 200 miles away from me in a few months. Austin, Texas. I want to figure out how to uh, put this on. Get us to be able to do phone record. You know this what I mean? Time. Well, I want to figure out how to record it, the conversation, so I can do podcast. Sure. Yeah. I don't know how to do it. If anyone knows how to do it, what's your favorite book, Kayla? All time. Of all time. And any subject? Any subject. That's a hard one. Uh, Pimp, The Story of My Life by Iceberg Slim. Okay. That's my favorite one. Why it was written that? in the 1930s. Uh, oh, yeah. God. He was a pimp during the Great Depression. Why was that your favorite? Such a good book. I'll have to check it out. It sounds pretty oh, cool. Yeah. They call him Iceberg Slim because uh, he was at the bar one time and a guy sh- shot up the bar and a bullet went through his hat. And while that was happening, Iceberg Slim just kept coolly eating his lettuce and they're they're like, dude, hey man, that was cold as ice. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I think that's how the story goes. I, I will definitely have to check that out. I'm a major fan of Dave Chappelle and he recommended that book. It's a great book. And... I don't know, the whole, if you can see any video or watch any movie, the one I'd recommend most would be a four-hour Dave Chappelle monologue, basically, of when he recently, of when he had just recently quit from Comedy Central, and his, how he thought about things, and the ideas that he had were pretty monumental in where I am today because he quit, he left $50 million on the table for how he felt he was being treated in Hollywood. Oh. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Big. You know why he did it? Uh, he, how he, how he explains what he did, he recommends reading Pimp by okay. Iceberg Slim. Okay. So. You're leaving us on a cliffhanger. Yeah, you, yeah. Well, thank you, Kalen, for being on. I appreciate it. No problem.